You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear Father in Heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given us to be here together at this camp meeting. We thank you for the people that have come, for the safety that you have provided, and for the assurance that we have that if we put our trust in you, that we can achieve the salvation that you so willingly have died to provide for us. Help us today as we learn more about your will for us, in fact, your prayer that we might be one. Open our hearts and minds to the inspiration of your spirit. Help us to be receptive, help us to be retentive, and help us to be willing to share the things that we learn from your word with others. For we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. And so we're going to remind you of the presentation purpose and outline at this time. This presentation is designed to demonstrate the absolute necessity of the acceptance of Christ-centered communal reconciliation through the Spirit as a prerequisite for unity and latter reign power. And now the outline, the first part we have done, and that's why it's in blue. We have done discussion questions. We looked at the text. We started our historical cultural context with looking at the old consensus on why Romans was written. Now we're going to look at the new consensus. Then we'll go into textual analysis, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, life in the flesh, and life in the spirit. And then so what? towards the theology of reconciliation, unity, and latter rain power. And on Friday, we're going to deal with the end of this outline, and it's entitled... His Invitation, the Gospel Imperative. Welcome one another, for Christ has welcomed you. We want to give you a brief review. Some of you are here, some not. And so this will help you to marry what we're going to do this afternoon. So here's a brief review of the old consensus on the letter to the Romans. The Lutheran consensus. Based on the 16th century work of Martin Luther, it was believed that Paul, without knowledge of the situation in Rome, wrote a theological treatise to Christians living in the capital city. Luther, using a thematic approach, believed that justification by faith was Paul's theological focus in Romans. And let me say, just for a moment, we talked about it on Sunday. Um, this thematic approach to the Bible is fairly dangerous, actually, because if you use a thematic approach or if you use a proof text approach, then you take the text out of what? Out of context. And so you can make the Bible say anything when you take it out of context. And so that approach is a very difficult approach. In the time of Luther, that was basically the approach that the Catholic Church used. For Luther, the letter emphasizes individual justification attained by grace through faith in Christ alone, as opposed to righteousness by works, as taught by medieval Catholicism. Yeah, and so this is one of the reasons why we celebrate Luther, 
because Luther was able, through the power of Christ's Spirit, to blunt the effect of the Catholic Church and its heretical teachings. And so we celebrate that aspect of his life and ministry. Yet Luther's propositional understanding of the gospel, as set forth in Romans, allowed him to maintain and promulgate the prevailing cultural prejudice in Germany towards ethnic Jews. Yeah, and we talked about that, I mean, yeah, yesterday, Sunday, that that was part of the culture of the time. In other words, Luther was really very much a product of his culture when you deal with this notion of anti-Semitism. He was a product of his culture. But what we want to emphasize now, again, we're still in the review, is this way that he interpreted Romans. This is what we're interested in, the proper interpretation of Romans. And so... Reconciliation between God and the individual through faith in Christ emphasized. Yeah, and so Luther placed his emphasis on what we call vertical salvation. We need to get this. It's really important. Vertical salvation. And this is important because Luther, as a Catholic, as a Catholic, he dealt with this notion of condemnation every moment in his life until he read the text a different way, both Romans and Galatians. And so it was really good news for Luther. And so he focused on this, you know, the relationship between God and the individual. And of course, that is part of the equation, but Luther left out a very important part. Reconciliation between sinners in light of the cross especially the ethnic other, de-emphasized from the Reformation to the present. And so now we're talking about this idea of horizontal, horizontal, horizontal salvation. You know, keep it in your mind that the Bible teaches, and I'm going to show you that in a moment, that you cannot separate the two. You cannot have a relationship with God and at the same time not have a relationship with your brothers and sisters. You know, truthfully, that's heresy. It cannot be done. You know, I talk to people all the time as a pastor, and many of my Seventh-day Adventist brothers and sisters believe that you only need a relationship with Jesus. Jesus never said that. That's all you need? So ask yourself the question. In Genesis 2.18, so you have God and you have Adam. Eve is not created yet in the second chapter. She's created in the first chapter, but then, you know, the second chapter gives us a deeper look. And so that verse says, It is not good for what? Man to be alone. Now, Adam was in the presence of God. He he is being told by God that you need a companion. 
And that companionship is about community. Let me surprise you, and then we'll go on. Do you know that God is a community? Huh? Come on. Father, Son, Spirit, paradox, three but one. And then Adam and Eve were created as a community. Adam, Eve, two but but one. Let's, let's continue. And so Luther de-emphasized this notion of the horizontal, and we've been having a problem with it until today. And so look at the biblical, what we call the biblical pronouncement. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, hmm. for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. You know, the text is actually definitive. The, the text says, cannot, cannot. If you don't love your brothers and sisters whom you see, you cannot. Is that clear? Now, that, that's not Gregory saying that. Huh? That's John. He's inspired saying that. Are we comfortable with it? You know, it's one of those definitive words in the Bible. I'm pausing because I want us to be clear. And so let's move to the problem then of Western theology. And there are a lot of strengths in Western theology, but there are limitations. And so Western theology emphasizes, it idolizes propositional truth. You know, so tell me an idea and I'm good. Nothing wrong with ideas, nothing wrong with concepts, nothing wrong with doctrines, but it's a proposition, propositional truth. You know, there's a difference in knowing about Jesus I can know about Jesus and not know Jesus relationally. And so, from proposition, personal conformity. That's what we often stress. You know, so still the focus on the individual. That moves us to the problem, and that is relationship neglected. Oftentimes, relationships are neglected. And so the corrective, we talked about it yesterday, the corrective, we have everything starting with Jesus Christ and the new life received. Now watch what happens. When you receive the new life in Christ, you will love the Father. This is what the Holy Spirit does in the heart. Love for God. But it is not just love for God, because when you love God, when that's produced, then you love huh? others. It's actually the fruitage. And now, let me cause us all to squirm, because Jesus taught that this will be your experience 
but it won't just stop for the neighbor that you like. It will reach out to the enemy, the person that despises you. Love for God, love for neighbor, Jesus says, and love for enemy. And he didn't just say it, he demonstrated it. Now, we know this isn't natural. It must come from, huh? And so we have to go over and show you it comes from the spirit of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're talking supernatural this afternoon. Are we all together? I need to, yeah. You know how teachers are. Okay. Now, this brings us back to the question. If not the old Lutheran consensus, why does Paul write to believers in Rome, and what does he hope to achieve? Yeah. And so in our presentation, we're moving you to the new consensus. We're moving you to the new consensus, and we want you to see it with us, okay? Historical evidence. Jewish Christianity likely reached Rome in the mid-40s AD, possibly as a result of the day of Pentecost. According to the Roman historian Suetonius in Lives of the Twelve Caesars, rioting occurred in the Jewish synagogues in Rome at the instigation of Christos. Notes. Suetonius may have spelled Christ's name C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S incorrectly as C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S and erroneously assumed that he was personally active in the dispute. So apparently, Suetonius thought Jesus was actually there stirring up the problem rather than the teaching about him through his followers stirring up the riots. Okay, now look at what occurred. In response to the disturbances, the Emperor Claudius issued an edict in 49 AD expelling the Jews from Rome. You know, the, the, the um, Roman authorities did not tolerate disturbance. You know, they felt that it was bad for business. So they did not tolerate it anywhere in the empire. And so you had disturbances in the capital city and the emperor said, no way. And of course, there's a reason why he expelled all of the Jews. And we talked about that yesterday. He didn't expel all of, you know, other folk. And you'll see in a moment why. Okay? Biblical support for what we're telling you historically. Now watch this. Luke corroborates the expulsion. He writes, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Yeah. So not only do we have historical evidence, but we have stronger evidence because now we have the word of God saying it. So now we have a situation, are you following us? Now we have a situation where you have no Christian Jews left in Rome. I'm talking about the empire, the capital of the empire, okay? They had been all forced out. And so in your mind, we're going to take you there. 
In your mind, ask yourself the question, hmm, what happens after that? It's almost like a story. What happens after that? Okay, let's look at it. Question? While Jewish believers were away, what happened to Roman Christianity? Ah, what happens when all the Jews are gone? And you know, based on the day of Pentecost, that Jews, Jews were the first people, and I'm talking about the remnant, they were the first people to accept Christ and take the gospel all over the world, right? And so now the Jews are no longer in the capital city. So here are the conclusions. It is likely that during the ban, leadership of Roman Christianity passed to former God-fearers, in other words, Christian Gentiles. Mm. So God-fearers were Gentiles that originally converted to Judaism, but when they heard the message of Christ, they became Christian Jews, in other words, Christian Gentiles. So they were Jews that became, gent that became Christians, but had formerly be believed um, in whatever Gentile religion they were, they were practicing. Now watch this. With the absence of a dominant Jewish presence, both theology and worship style had evolved based on Gentile sensibilities. Now, are, are you tracking with us now? Okay, because theology and worship style are not prescribed in Scripture. Theology is how we think about the text as an individual or group. Theology is very oftentimes informed by my culture. This is also true of worship style. Does the Bible dictate a worship style in Scripture? Come on. Are you all sitting there looking at us? There's no worship style dictated. Yeah, other than to say, ah, if the heart is right. God wants people to worship him in spirit and in truth. But it doesn't tell you whether you should do hymns or anthems. No. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with this later this week. Okay, because it's important. Look at this. At the death of Claudius in 54 AD, the edict either lapsed or was repealed, and Jews returned to Rome. After the ban, former Jewish leaders returned to find Christian Gentile leadership firmly established in the house assemblies in Rome. Uh-oh. Here's the point. In other words, the Gentile majority was now in control. Oh, boy. Now, I know this doesn't happen in your churches. Nobody's in control but Jesus. Oh, me. Are you getting the situation? Sometimes we make this stuff too abstract and romantic. You know, first century Christians were just like us. You know, they had their issues. And so when the Jews got back, man, what did they think when they heard, when they heard 
the Gentiles playing gospel music. I'm just, you know. Messing. <laughs> oh, man. I'm feeling good today, you know. Lord is good. Okay, another question. What is happening among Roman believers when Paul writes? And so this raises the question, what's going on? Because we're trying to ascertain, we're trying to ascertain the occasion for his writing and then his purpose. Here's our suggested answer. Paul's letter to the Romans is occasioned by ethnic and religious-based division. Look at that. I need to know, let me see your hands. Do you get this? Please, let Okay. This is why Paul writes. Get it now. This division creates tensions that are manifested through Jewish boasting, Gentile arrogance, overestimation of self, judgmentalism and indifference, and ethnic separation. Lord have mercy. Note the text. Yeah. And we're going to go through a little bit of this this week mm-hmm. to, to reinforce the point. But are, are we all clear? So, so, so let, me, let us summarize it. Let us summarize it with this. The Christian church in Rome has split. You know, it's almost a contradiction. The Christian church in Rome. You know, Jesus will later say, or Jesus has already said, that when you're one, the world will know. The church has split in Rome. You know, we need to be crying. Where's some tissue? I wonder if we're too comfortable with this. The church of Jesus Christ is split. And here is, ooh, Lord have mercy, we call it the critical question. Does conformity to Greco-Roman culture influence the situation in Christ's church? Hmm. I know that some of you are auditory, but many of you, most Americans, are visual. And so we're going to give you a visual now on this. And so remember, church, church, and society in the first century, you know, they actually overlap. So you have Greco-Roman society, but you have the church in the society, weren't they? Now, the question that we're asking is a very simple question, and I wish we had mics so that we could have your answer. Which way does influence flow? Is it from Greco-Roman society coloring the church blue? Or, ideally, is it the church changing the society metaphorically 
becoming salt and light. Which way is it flowing? Wow. Yeah. Are we comfortable with this? You know, you all are stating the reality. You're certainly stating the reality for the first century church in Rome. But are we comfortable with it? We want to show you now, and this is very important based on your answer, we want to show you the highest value in Greco-Roman society, the highest value. Okay, rhetorical questions. What did pagans in the time of Paul value above all else? What did they value? We're talking about core values. What did they value above all else? Okay. For perspective, consider a prior question. What do Americans value most? Yeah, so we want to get you ready. We want to get you ready for the first century by starting with the 21st century. Is that all right? Kind of makes sense? So what do Americans value most? Um, and I am an English and economics major. My name is Annalie Keelands. I'm a senior in the SFS, and my major is culture and politics. My name is Christopher Dix. I'm a senior in the School of Foreign Service. Hi, I'm Devin Coleman. I'm a senior in the Georgetown College studying government. My name is Maura Homan. I am a senior in the college, and my major is French with an English minor. I'm Colin Steele. I am a culture and politics major in the School of Foreign Service. My name is Amr Hussain. I'm a sophomore in Georgetown College, majoring in government and pre-med. I do believe that Americans hold um, our values of our constitution very highly, but also I think that all, all of Americans have a strong belief in their own individualism and their own ability to make a difference in their own lives. There's a certain something about being self-reliant, being very American, and as a senior at Georgetown, I tend to see this come out much more, especially as I compete with my fellow classmates for job offers and fellowships and other opportunities. Especially speaking of the job market, I think Americans have a the Protestant work ethic. Like to work hard and you'll get where you want to. We think that you can start at zero and work your way up as fast as you can, the whole pulling yourself up by your bootstraps notion. Um, I think we really do believe in that, but I think that part of the issue is that that doesn't really hold sway anymore. I think consensus is pretty important. I guess mutual respect maybe, but that kind of goes hand in hand with community, I would say. I think also most people do have a value of kind of to obey their own moral code. And I think that moral codes tend to be more or less the same amongst most societies. I would like to see things like morality and liberty and equality work their way more towards the forefront of the conversation. I think they're in there, they're just not being properly weighted. Yeah, so this video deals with American core values. Now let's go to answer our question about the pagans in the first century. Romans valued honor and the avoidance of shame. Wow. Now this is a new concept for us, but this was very much the core value in the first century. You know, this, this honor-shame culture, and so we wanted to give you a modern explanation of it so you'll understand it. 
and shame help us understand world cultures. But what is honor and shame? Remember the pressure in high school to wear certain clothes or talk a certain way to be cool? Honor is when others respect you for observing group expectations. And shame is when people scorn you for being inadequate. Recall Job. He was an esteemed person. But after he lost everything, he lamented, My friends forgot me. I'm a stench to my own family. Even young children despise me. God has stripped my glory from me. That's shame. When the community rejects you as worthless. And remember, cultures use many words to talk about honor, like glory, face, name, or dignity. Guilt-based cultures in the West appeal to laws and justice to define morality. But shame-based cultures in the East rely upon relationships and reputation to guide behavior. So think of honor and shame as a social credit rating. Since relationships and family are so important, your most viable asset is your reputation in the community. Avoiding shame and acquiring honor is the operating system behind everyday life in non-Western cultures. That's why honor-shame cultures speak indirectly to preserve face and harmony. Talking directly can be offensive, so use words to communicate honor, not just ideas. Honor-shame cultures also focus on events because gatherings confirm group identity. Starting on time without someone means they are not important to the group. Honor-shame cultures are also collectivistic, so what one person does affects the entire community. People get their identity from the group, not individual accomplishment. Finally, honor-shame groups are incredibly hospitable because sharing food together means community and acceptance. Okay, so we want to apply now this notion to what's going on in Rome. So we give you a technical definition of honor. Honor is the positive value of a person in his or her own eyes, plus the positive appreciation of that person in the eyes of his or her social group. In Greco-Roman culture, honor indicated a person's social standing and rightful place in society. Honor was a central value in Greco-Roman society. So a lot of people could say that freedom or democracy would be the core value in America. In Greco-Roman society, it was this notion of honor. To maintain individual or group honor, shame, that is social devaluation, was to be avoided at all costs. Yeah. And the point of this whole honor-shame system was that people believed that honor was a limited quantity. There was only so much honor to go around. So the way that you got honor was to shame others, because as you shamed others, especially those that were inferior to you, your honor increased. Okay. Now, con um, contextual application. Returning Jews, Christian and non-Christian, would have been viewed in Rome as exceedingly shameful, personae non grate, in other words, unwelcome persons. Yeah. You know, they have been shamed by being what? Expelled. And now they're coming back. And these dishonorable people, these shameful people, they're coming back to be part of the church. This group, devaluation, is directly related to 
Greco-Roman social stratification. Now, we're giving you a lot of background stuff, but we need it because on tomorrow we're going to go deep into the text. And this background stuff really matters, and we'll show you how it really matters. And so this notion of Greco-Roman stratification, social stratification, again, we want you to understand it, and so we have a prep question. A prep question. Huh? What do you know about social stratification in America? Okay, so again, we're bringing you to the first century by familiarizing you with the same idea in a different package in the 21st century. Make sense? Okay, so look. Had some type of social pyramid to abide by. Although most of us don't realize it, the United States has one of the most diverse social class systems, ranging from the richest of the rich to the homeless and hungry. The majority of the time, we see the media express USA as a wealthy country, but no one ever notices the levels of poverty that lie right beneath. Here we will see the five social classes that America has. At the top is the upper class. The upper class is known as an exclusive part of our country. The majority of the wealth that is acquired by the upper class is passed down from generations. It could be that these people serve on boards of directors of corporations, universities, or banks, or charities. They give their children the finest education and expect them to marry in their class. The middle class has two sections to it, the upper middle and lower middle. The upper middle class may live near the upper class. They're usually high-paid professionals, such as doctors, lawyers, or business people. They receive high education and support their children in expensive colleges in hopes of success. The lower middle class is where most Americans live in. They live in well-kept suburb neighborhoods. These people may have a government job, such as a police officer and a firefighter, or may own a small business. They stress moral values, religion, and working hard to succeed in life. The working class may live in some of the same neighborhoods as the lower middle. They may be factory workers or any other semi-skilled job. Their pastime activities might include watching TV, bowling, or participating in church-related activities. The lower class has a high crime rate. They have poor health, poor education, and bad reputations. They may not graduate from high school which makes it hard for them to get a job. They live in rundown buildings or small apartments. They have a small income. These are the five social classes that live in America. Okay, now let's move back to the first century and look at social stratification. And let's look at the composition of the upper strata. First you have the imperial household, in other words, Caesar's family. Then the senatorial class, which were the families and relatives of the senators in the Roman Senate. Then you had the equestrian class, which was really a military class, but the upper levels of the military class. And the decurian class was a class made up of people that were 
rural administrators for the government. And you can think of one that's famous in the Bible, the governor, Pilate. He was the Curian, okay? He was of that class. Now look at the lower strata, the composition. The respectable populace, including merchants, artisans, vets, veterans that is, and the free poor. Below that were freedmen, people who had been slaves but had been freed. Now what's very important about this stratification is this whole notion of the distribution of power and privilege in Roman society. Now you gotta get this because the distribution of power and privilege was based on five criteria. And we want to see, because it's a little bit different in America. So look at it. It was based on what were called status indicators. First was birth, in other words, pedigree. Next was wealth. And wealth was that which could be handed down from generation to generation. It wasn't income. So wealth included things like property, land, uh, valuable jewels or gold. Next. Education, and this was uh, education according to the Roman educational system, the highest level of which was rhetoric or persuasive speech. And then gender, of course, male gender was uh, predominant. Yeah, so ladies, you were in trouble in Rome, okay, by and large, you were in trouble. But now look at the fifth. Can you anticipate it? The fifth? Ethnicity. And the highest level of ethnicity, of course, was Roman citizenship. This is what Paul had that made him so special. Yeah, so he was an honorary Roman. Okay. We want you to see now how this morphs and how it is based on this notion of worldview. So look at how different groups actually conceived of the world around them. This is the Jewish worldview. You had the Jews, they believed that, you know, you had Jews and they were first and primary and then you had what? Gentiles. And then Jews believed, particularly practicing Jews, that you had pure Jews, you know, the religious, and impure Jews, the irreligious Jews. They even made a separation there. You know, the devil's really good, okay? And then when you look at the Gentile worldview, you had the Roman, and they viewed the Greeks as a bit civilized like them. But on the other hand, you had the ethnic other. So anybody different from you were considered literally, we talked about it yesterday, what? Do you remember? Barbarian. Barbarian, the ethnic other. Now, again, the critical question. We're bringing it home. We're almost finished for today. We're bringing it home. Does conformity to Greco-Roman culture influence the situation in Christ's church? And now we want to give you what we're calling the definitive answer. Christ's church in Rome is culturally compromised. I'm going to stop here for a second and let this sink in. 
The church of Jesus Christ, the church that Jesus Christ died to create, has been culturally compromised. Now, who do you think's behind all of that? Come on, come on. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's called the deceiver. You know, and cultural compromise is very difficult to identify, particularly when you're blending truth and error, Christ and culture. It creates a blindness. Paul's letter foreshadows the words of Jesus Christ, come out of her, my people. And I'm going to say something, Elder Stewart, that's going to get me in trouble. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it right now. But when Jesus says, come out of her, my people, in Revelation, in the first century, this is way before you had Catholicism or Sunday worship. Uh-oh. I am not suggesting that at a point that will not be applicable, come out of her, come out of Sunday. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that at the time Jesus uttered these words, Sunday worship was not an issue for Christians. So what was Jesus talking about? I want to show you something right now, and we can talk about it in our Q&A in a moment. Important note. In the book of Revelation, five of Christ's seven churches are culturally compromised. Let's get an example. For example, Romans viewed agape as foolish. The church at Ephesus abandoned their first love for Christ and neighbors, especially the Jewish other. Come out of her, my people. In the first century, lovelessness, you know, the, the, the Romans did not play with agape. They would practice storgy or, or phileo, friendship love. But unconditional love, they didn't play that. And the first church, Ephesus, they had lost their what? Their first love. And Jesus, one of the most, one of the most potent threats to the seven churches, he said, if you don't, if you don't allow me to give you back that first love, I will remove your what? Your lampstand. I'll excommunicate you. Is it serious to Jesus? Amen. Notice this. Only the persecuted churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, are not compromised.
<laughs> I want to say something, but I'm going to let that speak for itself. Again, the question. In writing to the Romans, what does Paul hope to achieve? And here is evidence-based answer. An evidence-based answer. Although not the founder of any of the assemblies in Rome, Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, would view the religio-ethnic division between Gentile and Jewish believers in Rome as antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sorry. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes... So here is why Paul writes this beautiful letter. To explain the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to foster reconciliation and unity among divided believers. Secondly, to challenge the Roman community renowned for its faith to live not based on cultural norms, but in response to God's saving activity in Christ. Do you see it? Now, we're going to support this throughout the week, throughout the rest of the week. So let us give you a summary in sum. Far from being an abstract treatise on justification by faith, Romans is a Christ-centered call to corporate sanctification among the people of God in Rome. And so we end with an application question. Is Paul's letter to divided Roman Christianity relevant for Adventism today? Okay, and we say amen, and we're ready to take some questions. And we're in good time. We are at 3 o'clock, so we have 15 minutes. And this is what we love, questions. And we have a roving mic. Okay. Any questions or comments? What does thematic mean? Thematic. Yeah. And so the idea is building on a theme, you know? And so um, there are many themes in Romans. You know, justification is one theme in Romans. But these themes were part of a larger narrative. They were part of a grand story. Paul had a real purpose, and so he used justification, and we'll talk about this later. He used justification by faith to talk about what Jews and Gentiles had in common in Christ. Jews and Gentiles had both been justified. Paul is writing to people who have been justified. They have been covered by Christ. In other words, we call it, we call it this notion of, um, I'm blocking right now. What is it? Imputed, imputed righteousness. Yeah, imputed righteousness. The covering. You know, and then what he's really interested in right now is imparted righteousness to the community. In other words, he's interested in their corporate sanctification. Loving, learning to love one another is corporate sanctification. One of the things that over the years I've noticed about 
the explanations of Romans is it talks about the importance of reconciling us to God. Mm -hmm. And of course it does. We do need to be reconciled. But what you're bringing out is the concept that we also need to be reconciled to one another. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and I found over the years that, you know, there's a, there, we always tend to talk about um, race relationships on the, on the larger scale. But as a Caucasian, I know that there is prejudice, you might say, within the Caucasian race for oh, other yeah. Caucasians. Oh, definitely. You know, and um, working with the ethnic churches, I know that that's true in every ethnicity. Right. And so it really makes a lot of sense that part of the gospel, part of what Christ is doing and what Paul is talking to us about in Romans is how the two can be made one, you know, in Christ. That's right. And it's Christ that enables us to be reconciled together, brother to brother, sister to sister, uh, whether it's your own race or whether it's another race or whether it's Jew or Gentile. Right. So it's, uh, it's a beautiful picture of, and I think it fills out what Romans is really all about gives you the full picture of the gospel. Right. Thank you. Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, Roman culture it was challenging for the church in Rome. And could you cite some examples for how Western culture is challenging for the Adventist church today? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> you, you really don't want me to go there, do you? <laughs> Um, we're going to talk about it, and we're not going to talk about it directly, but indirectly and spiritually because it is so charged in America right now, and that's politics. Lord, have mercy. I'm going to show you statements from Ellen White, and I believe that God used Ellen White. I'm going to show you statements that's going to curl your hair. Ellen White says, I'm giving you a little preview. Ellen White says that we are not supposed to be politically aligned, period. She says Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Are we politically aligned in the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Oh, my Lord. It is brutal right now. And again, Satan will use anything to divide and what? And conquer. And so we want to, you know, that, that's a potent example. There are certainly others. Huh? Let me give one. One of the things that we have found in talking with um, older Adventist workers, ministers, yeah. is that they feel, and in many cases can give you evidence, that they have been pushed aside because they're old. So they have been given all kinds of incentives to retire from their ministries. We have a close friend right now who is very, very concerned about this because he feels that he was pushed aside. This man is one of the best preachers in our community. Right, still. And when he preaches, people come to listen, but he was pushed aside. 
In our culture right now, um, particularly among millennials and Zen Gs, we have this thing of ageism, that old people are to be pushed aside, very different from cultures where this is not true, like Alaska culture or various Asian cultures where older people are venerated. So older people have been shifted aside. In our church, this should not be. Wisdom comes with age. God has been teaching older people all these many decades through experience, through trials, and yet they're pushed aside, and we buy into the culture of ageism. Yeah. You know, and, and let's be fair, it can go both ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, we look down, you know, Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. Your youth. You know, but again, this notion, I, I think about it in Scripture. We have so many examples. Look at how, look at how Moses and Joshua worked together. Old and young. All of Paul's Tim, all of Paul's assistants were young men and women. But they were working together for one goal, and that was for the glorification of God and his Christ. So we shouldn't buy into these isms. These isms are from the devil. I'm just going to say all these isms. Okay, next question. Something that I saw that you, there was referred to often in whether the videos or the topic of culture, um, which is a word that I, one, I don't think that everyone believes they have one. A culture? Yeah. Okay. Um, You know, I think oftentimes, I'm I'm speaking as an American, although, you know, someone would probably look at me and say, okay, you're African-American. Okay, yeah. But as an American, um, I think it's, it often is that we look at other people as having a culture. Oh. And we think that being American is just altogether something different. Right? Um, what What I have appreciated thus far is breaking down even within our culture as Americans that we have ideas and thoughts about life and all of these different things. And you brought up something else about this thing of shame and honor. Yeah. Um, can, you, can, you, can you talk or share a little bit more about how that plays a part in the way that we can kind of... Um, that prevents us from being able to understand each other? Oh, yes. Well, you know, when you use categories like honor and shame, you immediately, and this is a big word, conceptually, you, re- you immediately put a label on a person. You know, we do this all the time. We're into categorizing. You know, one of the most important verses in the Bible, and you know it very well, God so loved the world. You know, he didn't put labels. Labels. And Romans did this. You know, they put a label on your back, and you are honorable, you know, based on your, your, your class, your stratification, your place in the stratification. And then other people were shameful. And you don't even have to give a person a chance. You don't even have to know the person. That person is dismissed because of some cultural 
label. The person's dismissed. You don't even know the person. And truthfully, we do it all the time, don't we? And so this whole notion of categorizing. You know, we should all categorize, when you look at other human beings, you should categorize that person as a person for whom Christ died. Ooh, that makes that person special. Well, I, know, I, I get a sense that the, the labels or categorization happens at the upper class to separate themselves from lower. Maybe it happens at all levels, but... I, I kind of feel like the those who are at the bottom just get whatever they're given because <laughs> they, they don't define necessarily how things go. But how else do... I, but I think that sometimes that happens in church as well. Mm. We maybe esteem others more than, than, than we should. Mm-hmm. Uh, or ourselves more than we should, as as Paul says in, in chapter 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering about, <clears throat> I think that you, you mentioned that uh, there were just two churches that were persecuted, and they, didn't, they were not culturally compromised mm-hmm. because of that, mm-hmm. most likely, because, because that persecution seems to kind of level the playing field a little bit more, I think. That's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. go ahead, hon. And also, unfortunately for us, I guess, as, as human beings, when we are persecuted, we tend to rely on Christ. We call <laughs> on the Spirit. When we're doing fine and we're prospering, we think that we did it ourselves. And so we become very self-confident as opposed to being God-confident. When you're persecuted, God is the only confidence that you have. There's also, I think, um, we have a tendency to lose our mission mm. when, when we are focused on what the agenda is going to be for the board meeting mm-hmm. and, and, real, and realize that it's the people and the mission is to share Christ and instead of, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. And I would, I would direct all of our attention to um, James, you know, the book of James, his letter, because he talks about this notion of partiality in the church. You know, and because it is, again, culturally acceptable, it walks around in church and we accept it. I'm going to say this, and again, it's going to get me in trouble. I don't like trouble. You know, but I was asked to be, and I'm not going to say the name, I was asked to be a, an elder in one of our churches in Adventism. So didn't I leave it really broad? And do you know why I was asked to be an elder in that particular church? Had nothing to do with my character because I have a THD. Because most of the elders in that particular church were highly educated professionals. You're an elder because you have a degree? Really? 
You better read some Paul in First and Second Timothy when he tells you about the qualifications of an elder. It's about this. It's about Christ-likeness. Not about degrees or wealth or any old foolishness like that. Did I, did I get in trouble? But tell them what happened. No, I'm not going to tell them what happened. <laughs> this is the good story. Okay, I should. I should. I should. My wife wants me to do it, and she's been in charge for 41 years. Okay, so, <laughs> so after that, after that, <laughs> the Lord told me, get this now, the Lord told me after being, actually they asked me to be the head elder of the church. I said elder, but it was the head elder. After that, Jesus, through his spirit, didn't ask me. He said, Gregory, I want you to be a deacon. Tell them that you will be a deacon. I told them. The saints almost lost their minds. Do you know, some of the ministers in that church, when I took up the offering, they wouldn't look at me. I had brought the ordained ministry down. This is the nonsense that we're dealing with. Saints, our time's over, but remember, he prayed that we might be what? Might be one. My wife's going to pray. Let's pray. Father, in these closing moments, we thank you for your spirit being among us. Help us to think about the things that we've discussed, Help us to go back to the text, to the Bible, and read, and send your spirit to enlighten our hearts, we pray in your name and for your sake. Amen. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021, or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.